As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. You already know, guys, that I continue to bring you some of the best guests onto the Malcolm Effect. Joining me today, I have my co-host and good friend, Christian Joseph, and none other than the man himself, Vijay Prashad, who requires no introduction. However, I'm going to try. All I know is every time this man speaks, a clip goes viral. And it's someone, you know, I continue to consider my teacher and I continue to learn from. But Vijay, thanks so much for coming to the Malcolm Effect. However, I have one one uh, question before we get into the real business. You recently went on to Red Nation and said that that was your favorite podcast. So I'm hope Malcolm Effect can be your second favorite. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. You, yes, it's my second favorite podcast. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much once again. Um, it's a pleasure and honor to be speaking with you. So we're going to go straight into it. Talking all things, which seems to be an occurring, reoccurring word imperialism what do we mean by that well categories like imperialism or capitalism we don't really need them if the world didn't force it on you if you had the ability for a country let's take the country of zambia for instance a rich mm -hmm. country lots of copper the eastern districts the copper belt you know it's one of the world's largest copper holdings copper is something so essential in our world today you know you can't, mm -hmm. I'm talking to you through a computer, the wires, the connection between you and me is made through most likely copper from Zambia. And yet, you know, almost 60% of the children who live in the copper belt region of Zambia are illiterate. Uh, how wow. is this possible? How is it possible that a country that is so rich in resources cannot have the ability to educate its children? Is it corruption? Is that, does that explain it? doesn't seem to me to be a likely explanation. Every time a country like Zambia attempts to create its own path forward, attempts to exercise its sovereignty over its resources, somebody interferes. When Bolivia had an incredible increase in the social life of its population during the 14 years of Evo Morales' government, when Bolivia began to exercise sovereignty over its various resources, including lithium, there was a coup. And this is not something that's unusual. You know, we have seen coups since the end of World War II over and over again. And, and they don't happen in countries that have uh, no interest for the advanced capitalist states. You know, if a country has no interest, if they're not interested in you at all, they won't come and, and do a coup. There are actually maybe two countries where there are where you can say oh these two countries don't have resources why is the particular united states obsessed with them one is afghanistan mm -hmm. which you know on the surface doesn't look like it has many resources although the minister of mines in afghanistan about a decade ago said there's 3 trillion dollars worth of resources in the country which have not been tapped properly effectively i mean i know that in in the northern provinces, you have, you know, lapis lazuli, a lot of jewelry, you have e even industrial minerals and so on. But the reason they've been obsessed with Afghanistan is its geopolitical or geostrategic location. Afghanistan sits in the heartland of, of Asia. Uh, it has been a core place from which the United States previously tried to poke and did poke the USSR, the Soviet Union. And now it has a role in in the great battle over who's going to have a Silk Road. You know, will it be the United States? Will it be the Chinese? Uh, so that's one reason. Afghanistan, yes, it has resources untapped. The reason they're obsessed with it is not necessarily resources, but geostrategic location. And then there's Cuba. You know, why is the United States obsessed with Cuba? What does Cuba have? Does the U.S. want to corner, you know, the sugarcane market? I mean, what's the issue? No, there it's slightly different. There... The United States cannot tolerate a country that just stands up and says, we have a different way forward. You know, whether you have resources or you have your own agenda, 
uh, you get suffocated. And so the word we give for that suffocation is imperialism. Uh, I could say more about how there is a necessity by capitalism to essentially bring wages in what, let's call it, the tropical parts of the world lower than normal levels in order to have raw materials come at very cheap prices. There is a way in which wages in this belt of countries are kept much below uh, normal levels. And then it's justified on racial grounds. You know, people will say that, oh, they don't need modern life. Look at them. They live like this. They live like that. In India, they have a different understanding of human life and so on. You know, racist explanations are given to justify lowered wages. I mean, it's a brilliant point. It's also reiterated by Kwame Nkrumah when he speaks about how the welfare state in Britain was set up. It was that capitalism was needed extra markets and newer markets. So exported capital or exported to get labor from the global south, particularly in places in West Africa. And that serves as a mystification of class, actually, because people have this kind of false class consciousness in the UK. But it's only due to the welfare system, which is only made possible by the super exploitation of the global south. So, yeah, thank you for that. Christian, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, I think at the end there, you were kind of hinting at income deflation as like a foundational part of imperialism. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and the various policies through which and processes through which income deflation happens along the periphery. Obviously, uh, Christian, it's different in different parts of the world, in different countries. There's no general process. Nonetheless, there are some very significant trends. So you see that in these parts of the world, for the last 50 odd years, there's been an attempt by big industry uh, to come in and essentially say that um, miners, you know, will work at this rate and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, either you take it or leave it. And they, there's been a lot of pressure on governments to accept that those wage rates are acceptable. When countries tried to lift, had tried to lift their, their minimum wages or improve somehow social wages, there's pressure that comes from international institutions such as the International Monetary Fund. You know, what is a social wage? A social wage is a very simple thing. It's an elegant thing. I work in a, in a mine and I get a certain amount of wages individually. And then my employer and I pay taxes into a fund. Those taxes then are paid back to me as social wages. It'll come as, say, better transportation system, education for my children, health care, and so on. These are wages that come socially. But the International Monetary Fund, World Bank and others come in and they say, no, you shouldn't subsidize education, shouldn't subsidize healthcare, and so on. India has the highest out-of-pocket expenses for healthcare. It's just ridiculous. It's one of the poorest countries in the world in terms of the numbers of poor people and the extent of poverty amongst them. Of course, when you look at the you know average rate of poverty, it's not that great because there's a lot of people with a lot of wealth. But you know, there's like 600 million people struggling to survive in the country. Mm-hmm. That's twice the population of the United States or thereabouts. So when you squash social wages and you keep individual wages down, people have much less money that they are able to and much less resources to build their own lives. And that's an issue of great significance. And yes, that's income deflation. But I want to just put it quite strongly. It's not just the income that I receive as wages, but it's also my social wages that have been deflated. It's a plain fact that in many of the advanced capitalist countries, in fact, there are better social wages for the population than in countries where the social wages are necessary, you know, so that in most European countries, social wages are excellent. You know, you'll get mm-hmm. decent health care, you have very good public transportation, you have excellent public education systems, you know, they, they could be better, of course, and so on. But they're still pretty, pretty good, you know, mm-hmm. whereas in, in countries of the third world, governments were simply not allowed to do that by, you know, private lending, whether it's the London group of lenders or the Paris group of lenders, which is the, you know, the public sector lending. Either way, there's been a lot of pressure on these countries not to uh, increase social wages. And then private firms come in and say, we're just not paying you more, you know, take it or leave mm-hmm. it. So this is this creates near starvation levels. You know, what happened in Mexico, the creation of maquiladoras, you know, these 
free trade zones where people would come in and there were no rights and so on. The Makila Dora is hardly a novelty in many parts of the world. You think that workers in the in the mining sector in Democratic Republic of Congo, they were like looking at the Makila Dora saying, wow, that's a new system. This has been their system since the 1960s, you know, when Mobutu was the head of government after the coup against Lumumba. This has been their system since the 60s. Outsourced labor, hardly new to the Congo. They call them artisanal labors. It's a fancy word essentially for the most precarious form of mining. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, these harsh practices against people are a ki- are exactly what you use the phrase, the deflation of income. That's exactly. It's a suppression of the ability of people to eat, to study, to have leisure and so on. For real. And you know, when um, you speak about fanciful words and, you know, the IMF will come in and the World Bank will say, you know, structural adjustment development. And I'm recalling when you spoke on, I think it was the launch of the Russian Revolution, Walter Rodney. And you said, you know, this is not structural adjustment, adjustment. this is theft and pillage. This is what we should be talking about. Moving on then, we speak a lot about in socialist groups or in in activist circles, the revolution, revolution. You also said as well, you know, I'm not waiting for the revolution. You know, we speak about will it come in my time and when actually you want to win. You know, we're not struggling for struggle's sake. And I'm quoting you here. But question people do ask, is it that we're calling for a revolution in the West? And is that feasible? Well, why not? I mean, uh, (laughs) why isn't it feasible? I mean, take, take the case of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the conditions are right in the UK for a transition to another system because, frankly, the system isn't working. You know, I mm-hmm. was recently in the UK for the uh, COP26 the pop, yeah. and I took the train from London to, to Glasgow. And I must say, the train was pretty nice and so on. But again, it was chaotic because there's so many different private companies. The train stock is different in different places. Even when you go into the, the subway, the underground in London, well, it's it's a very nice system, but you can see that it suffers from lack of investment. And mm-hmm. they're just, you know, the money that is there, such a rich country, the UK, the money that exists there just doesn't go to people. I, I was surprised to see the level of homelessness in, in London. Just, yes. it was quite shocking to see that. So the objective conditions exist. The problem is the subjective Facts are not there. There is no confidence amongst the working class. The kind of uh, either combination of jingoism, various kinds of chauvinism or reformism, the feeling that, you know, we'll get some changes here and there on the margin. This basically, you know, suffocates the ability for people to think that a new system is possible. But look, even in the UK, look at what Jeremy Corbyn was able to inspire. A mass rebellion of people against the system. And they had to, in a sense, do a coup against him. I mean, the coup against Jeremy Corbyn was conducted in the name of anti-Semitism. This is a form of a political coup inside the the Labour Party. And now you see Keir Starmer, you know, the gap between Starmer and, and Johnson, it's limited. So, you know, what we have is we have the objective conditions there. There is a lot of wealth in these countries, but a lot of distress, immense amount of distress. And the, the basic political elites don't have an answer. That's the main thing. They don't know how to deal with the crisis. They don't have any solutions. You know, what they come up with is mediocre. You know, during the whole pandemic, these governments, their central banks came up with between 12 and 16 trillion US dollars. 12 and 16 trillion wow. US dollars to save capitalism, essentially. And they can't come up with this kind of money to end poverty, to end hunger, to end homelessness. They just refuse. So they don't have any moral capacity to stand up, you know. But the problem is, on the subjective side, our movements are either weak or don't have confidence. And Mm -hmm. that has to be something to put on the table, you know, how to strengthen our movements, how to, in fact, confront the consciousness that's reformist and jingoistic, you know, how to Mm -hmm. do that frontally. You can't build a socialist movement that's not anti-racist, for instance. You know, it's not possible. And in Britain, that seems to be a real problem. You know, you can't dance with racism. The Mm Labour Party has this problem. There are people who say, oh, we shouldn't forget the, you know, white voters in the north of England. Well, that's interesting. Germany, in Delinka, for instance, Sarah Wagenknecht and that section of Delinka 
they come out there openly and say we need an anti-immigrant position because we need to win the working class back. And mm-hmm. I think that's suicide for the left. It's funny you said that because clearly that has been the case for the Labour Party and Keir Starmer right now. You know, they now in almost every video of Keir Starmer, there's a Union Jack flag to kind of, you know, show we're patriotic. And, you know, and one thing I've seen, if history teaches one thing, the left never, ever win on the ideological grounds of the right. <laughs> as, as you said, it's suicide. Um, Christian? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is this kind of question of revolution in, you know, the developed world or the global north, oftentimes, or, you know, just trying to get some sort of political wins on the, uh, from the left, like in the, in the kind of developed world, you know, in certain, in certain parts of the left, people try to kind of de-link it from like international struggle and, mm-hmm. and struggle that's going on in the global South. So like in this kind of need to, to, you know, really strengthen ourselves in, in, in the subjective area and putting ideas on the table for that, how do we also kind of, you know, address the issues of international struggle that are beyond, you know, our borders here in the West? Well, you know, all political formations of the left have to have this sort of, you know, maybe it's, let's call it a, a internal uh, tension between dealing with the national interests and dealing with internationalism. I mean, internationalism is a very complicated business, you know, and it's actually the province of the left to be internationalists. You see, globalization or whatever it is, those ideas, those are ideas of business. Uh, Commerce wants the globe to be its market. Um, Commerce is always interested in that. You know, Marx and Engels write in the Communist Manifesto, they batter down the Chinese walls of nations, you know. That's globalization. That's why commerce wants to have a kind of global uh, presence. But uh, globalization is not the same as internationalism because, mm-hmm. you know, you can be, you can have globalized commerce, but you don't care about people in other countries. In, in other words, what I've already said, in fact, globalization insists on keeping wages down of people, you know, in some parts of the world. That's the opposite of internationalism. So workers in, say, the United States might say, well, it's better if workers who produce the raw materials get paid less because then we are able to bargain for higher wages. You know, in fact, globalization is not necessarily about solidarity. It's about profit for the very top corporations and and the small numbers of people that run them. But internationalism is difficult and complicated because sometimes your national interest has to suffer in order for mm. us to uh, come to terms with the fact that we have to uh, be in solidarity with other people. You know, you have to wonder, uh, yes, we want to fight for higher wages in the West as well and better working conditions and higher social wages and attack the fact that, you know, $35 trillion odd is sitting in tax havens and, you know, all of that, right? All of that has to be on the table. But you can't build a movement that says, I'm comfortable with, Having, you know, uh, my bargaining take place on the backs of raw material workers elsewhere. Uh, You can't have that. I mean, when the coup happened against Evo Morales, the trade union movements in the West should have stood up and said, we are against this coup. You know, we want the Bolivian people to thrive. We understand the tension between our national interests and internationalism. But, you know, we will never, uh, you know, never sacrifice the the needs and, and rights of the Bolivian people in order for us to do better. So I think that's the dance that has to be uh, brought in. And, you know, in, in, well, countries like the United States and in some parts of Europe, there is a real insular mentality in sections of the left, which, you know, believe somehow that they have to sort out their own national issues first. Now, that's true, but you can't sort out your national interests on the backs of other people. I was in, in Belgium recently and I had a very s- superb engagement with the Belgian Workers' Party. Uh, and they were saying this, they were saying that we oscillate between focus on national issues and internationalism. And they said it's, you know, it's a challenge for us. And, and I, I listened to what they were saying and I thought this is a key point that they are making, that it's not easy for a political formation in, you know, in the advanced in, uh, capitalist countries to be internationalist. It's a struggle. It's a Mm -hmm. huge struggle. And and I salute them, you know, in the Belgium Workers' Party for acknowledging, you know, the the nature of that struggle. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting that you that you were pointing out this kind of difference between uh, internationalism, international solidarity versus globalization. And something that's interesting is that I was watching one of your videos on hybrid war, and you were speaking about international solidarity persisting through through the decades. However, you know, they lost kind of a a goal of decolonization and traded international solidarity for a bit more like myopic goals. Could you could you speak on like international solidarity needing to be kind of behind a a a goal of socialism, a goal of of decolonial struggle? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a pretty straightforward thing. Let's say that you are a US worker in a trade union or not even in a trade union. The chances are that in your workplace, either you yourself are a migrant or that there are other migrants in your workplace. Chances are. This is even the case in in many parts of Europe. I mean, in Britain, certainly. If you're not a migrant, uh, you may be a child of a migrant. I mean, the very high, high number of people in the working class who are either migrants or work alongside migrants. Now, the question of migration is interesting for at least the working class. You know, these are not people who came with high levels of education uh, and were able to barter education for citizenship. You know, this is the case of people who came most likely because of some kind of turmoil in their country, turmoil either premised on war or turmoil premised on some kind of IMF policy. Mm -hmm. You know, they already have an experience of what it means to have the boot of, of imperialism on the neck. The issue is that they're quite grateful to have left and may not be political, you know, may say, look, I, I don't want to be political. Now I'm here, I'm working in a factory or I'm driving a taxi. I don't want to deal with anything. But they have a, a feeling of this, you know, they know what it means. They have family members there. Again, if they themselves are not migrants, they, they have friends who are migrants who also have family in other places and so on. It's not like the experiences of the working class in countries of Asia, Africa, Latin America, it's so distant from the working class in the West. Not at all, because of this actual, this fact, the fact of the migrant worker and the fact of their presence in the workplace, you know. And so for socialist formations, trade unions and so on, to ignore this, I think, is, is actually going against the actual interests of people in your workplace. For instance, I'll give you an example. Many countries rely, many countries in, in, in Central America and in South America rely on remittances coming from workers in the United States. In fact, the Philippines relies on remittances coming from workers in the United States and the Gulf countries. So, you know, these workers understand that when, say, you know, Western Union or some of these firms change their rates, when they increase the fees, for instance, I'm always struck by the fact that trade unions don't get involved in that struggle because it's their members who are working hard, who are saving money, sending money home. And then these companies come in and relatively powerless workers sending money through, you know, these Western Union and other money transfer companies, which increase fees. Why isn't the union there uh, making an issue of it? You know, because this is something for their workers. It's the living conditions of their workers. And that raises questions of remittance. It raises questions of why countries like the Dominican Republic and so on are so reliant on remittance payments. Why are they not able to raise their own wages for their workers inside the country, take more royalty from mm -hmm. the companies that are working there, taking advantage of people and so on? Why aren't they able to do that? These are real serious political questions which are raised in the heart of the West by the lives of the migrant workers that work alongside others. So I don't actually think that this is a question of distant solidarity. It's actually a question of proximate solidarity, solidarity with yourself as a migrant and solidarity with the migrants around you. Mm -hmm. In speaking about them building a solidarity between the working classes in places that have real racial tensions, you said a short while ago, you can't build a socialism that isn't anti-racist. But then recently, I'm sure you're aware of the kind of timeline TL discourse, as we call it on Twitter, where, you know, we have to, and this is coming from some leftists, that we should build movements that appeal to patriotism, specifically American patriotism. Naturally, the response from those who 
were considered Pan-African socialists, like, no, these people have put whiteness over above working class solidarity. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, it's a silly argument to make. And as I said, this is the argument made by sections of the linker. It's the argument made by sections of the Labour Party. It's not just in um, North America. I think this is there in the Western left in general. There is this mm-hmm. feeling that as um, the right has put the question of, well, no, let me back up actually. There's something more deep here, which is to say that migration rates have increased. That's true. As a consequence of wars and as a consequence of, of you know IMF type policy. Yes, people are migrating. Uh, as they migrate, they migrate into the West where there is a crisis for the working class and has been there for a while. This crisis engendered by the departure of, of jobs seeking inf- income deflated places to set up shop. Uh, this has come from greater productivity gains in the West and so on. Whatever it be, there's a crisis of the working class in the West. You put these two things together, the migration and the working class in crisis. And this is a potent soup for the far right to come in with its jingoistic kind of politics, chauvinistic mm-hmm. politics. Look, Brexit, Brexit was against uh, Eastern European migration into, into Britain. Yep. I mean, that's really the heart of the earlier UKIP kind of conversations. There were these racist kind of things about, you know, these, these plumbers from the East coming and undermining wages of the proper British plumber. That was the basic uh, kind of racism that came in i mean you can't you can't get into that discourse and take it seriously you know this so pseudo patriotic discourse which is essentially racism in a slightly better language you can't get into that because you have to confront the structural issue which is that structurally capitalism is creating deserts in the west putting uberizing all workers essentially And at the same time, you know, migration comes because you are bombing other countries and destroying the economies. These two things are two sides of the same coin. You can't then turn around and say, no, no, let's be anti-immigrant. But that's not going to solve anything for you, you know, particularly given, again, the fact that in the working class in many of these countries, there's already a high percentage of either migrants or children of migrants. And anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, take Germany, for instance, you want to go into the anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, the mobs that go to beat up immigrants, they don't care if you're a Turkish immigrant who's been there for 70 years, you know, they'll still beat you up. They don't care if you're somebody who's been in England for 100 years, you know, they'll still come after you. They don't make those distinctions. So This is something that you'll alienate sections of the actually existing working class, which is the black and brown workers. Uh, you'll alienate them from your politics. So why would you want to enter that? They are your core base. You know, you can't build a socialist project in the West without black and brown workers at the heart of it. You know, women workers at the heart of it. Chauvinism is not going to help you. Mm-hmm. All right. There's no smooth transition to this one, but it is, a, <laughs> it is a pressing question. How would you respond to the claims that uh, China is a colonizing or imperial force in Africa? Well, you know, we have to first look at what China is. It's a country of 1.4 billion with a, with a state uh, which has, over the course of the last 60 years, oscillated in its politics. You know, from the reforms of 1978, for instance, it has moved in various ways, various tempos uh, regarding its understanding of whether you want more private enterprise or state control and so on. This went a little far before 2013. You know, you got private enterprise essentially able to do what it wanted in many parts of China. And in 2013, the Communist Party of China had its new leadership. Xi Jinping comes in with a mandate essentially to move things to the left. And you have seen under Xi Jinping some moves in that direction, one of them being a crackdown on big capital. It's not easy to do, by the way, because you've got, you know, tens of millions of big capitalists in a country. You can't so easily just say, well, sorry, crack down. But, you know, after building the strength of the left inside China, they have. You know, they crack down on Ant, they crack down on Jack Ma, the most powerful capitalist inside China. Mm-hmm. So you got to understand it's a process. You know, it's not a brand. You can't throw a label on it. You know, socialism doesn't come by branding. It comes by struggle and serious class struggle. And, and Mao wrote after 1949, the class struggle isn't going to disappear. That's why he called for the Cultural Revolution and so on, because 
they felt that the right was gaining ground and and so on so it's not like china is you know one thing that you can say it's this or that now as part of xi jinping's in xi jinping's period from 2013 onward china has had to also assess the fact that chinese firms many of them private firms but some of them public firms have been operating around the world and they operate with different forms of of understanding you know in in many parts of the world not just in africa the private companies have come in mining companies bid for contracts won contracts and so on these are slightly outside the control of the government you know so for instance there are companies that bid in the democratic republic of congo and there's allegations of bribery of course this stuff happens you know it's not like every 1.4 billion people in china is upstanding socialist who's not going to you know fall prey to various kinds of corruption and so on these things happen and of course it's also true that private companies don't always behave with the best of of their intentions you know what we would intend what we would hope is what i mean no they can behave appallingly the question is what is the state doing about it? because that's how you have to measure this and what are forces in society doing against it well there's a lot of evidence recorded evidence of the state very much upset by this kind of behavior i mean that's the reason why under xi jinping all these forums started africa china forum the reason they have these forums is it's a place to discuss these things to talk about these things you know it's also a place to pledge aid including in the most recent one in west africa they pledged 1 billion vaccine doses that's a lot more than the mm-hmm. west has ever pledged and so mm-hmm. on but then you know there is a kind of of communication war going on around this I, i'm in the middle of working on the story about how it was that the monitor in uganda ran a story saying that there's a problem with the airport there entebbe airport mm-hmm. that tebi airport needed to get money to essentially modernize upgrade and so on uh, they got funds from 200 million dollars from the export import bank of china this deal was struck you know just a few years ago 6 years ago or so and the ugandan government had put guarantees to the loan obviously it's a loan you know it's not a gift it was a loan they didn't negotiate a gift they negotiated a loan as part of that there were some you know clauses about how payments should be structured and so on but the mm-hmm. monitor ran a story saying that well china is going to take over the airport because uganda cannot pay back the loans and the chinese are refusing to negotiate well that was an interesting story came out of nowhere it was repeated in bloomberg it was all over twitter and so on yes turns out to be an entirely false story because that's exactly not what happened it's true uganda is having a hard time underwriting the loan and it's the ugandan government that essentially came in there and had put the guarantee and can't pay it back so the chinese have been negotiating with them several rounds of negotiation took place and it's not going great got to say that this was not a grant this was not a gift this was a loan and so they are negotiating the loan but nobody's talking about taking over the airport you know they're talking about how to create a procedure to recover some of the funds and so on this is a normal thing in any commercial engagement you know i i think it's really interesting that the way this story broke it broke just before the china africa summit was to start almost to eclipse any conversation there including that the chinese government announces 1 billion vaccine doses to the african continent this was to eclipse that i found that the timing to be amazing and i was surprised the monitor's entire story is based on leaks from officials that are unnamed so i don't know how they got the story but the headline was pretty clear you know the headline of the story wasn't we think this we think that the headline of the story was uganda surrenders airport for china cash very very inflammatory headline and turns out it's not true so well we have to one be sober look at things for their complexity not get caught up with headlines that are so inflammatory and also by the way not true <laughs> i think some of the charges of china being colonizing force are, are often coming from the west i think even hillary clinton is uh, quoted for warning of of china being a colonizer in africa and you speak at length in in your work about hybrid wars do you think uh, some of these charges are an example of that and and could you speak a little bit more about hybrid wars and their and 
the wars that you know the U.S. is waging against various socialist and decolonial projects? Well, first thing to pay attention to is the fact that the countries that are basically coming out there and and saying, "Oh my God, China is colonizing Africa," are drum roll the old colonizing countries. You know, I remember I read the Financial Times every day. I remember reading in the Financial Times, China is colonizing Africa, and I'm thinking. During the entire colonial period, what did you at the Financial Times do? Did you say it's an outrage that that whatever India is colonized by the English? These people have no credibility to speak on those issues. China is colonizing Africa. You know, Hillary Clinton directly intervened so that when the government in Haiti, extremely poor country, which you know had its revolution in 1804, has never been allowed to breathe, uh, when the government of Haiti started discussing raising the minimum wage for workers in Haiti, Hillary Clinton directly intervened to stop it and to prevent it on behalf of U.S. companies, you know, which run essentially sweatshops in Haiti. This is in the public record thanks to the WikiLeaks Foundation because they revealed the State Department cables, which showed direct intervention by Hillary Clinton. You're talking about China colonizing Africa. You have colonized Haiti. What about talking about that, preventing the country to survive? You took over the loan. You know, the United States took over the loan from France. I'm sorry, the, the, the piece of paper from France. The Haitians had to pay back the French for defeating slavery. You know, they had to pay back for the French loss of property. That's actual human beings who freed themselves. They had to pay the French for that. And after the French decided they didn't want to hold the paper, they handed it over to U.S. banks. United States banks collected money from Haiti right till the 1950s. That's from 1804 to the 1950s. For what? For the property of the French that was lost. What was that property? Human beings. And you see, when they talk about, well, there's colonialism now in Africa, it's hilarious, you know. I mean, what gives them the right to talk like that? In fact, African governments don't talk like that. African governments say, oh, now the Chinese have arrived. Well, now we have two checkbooks at least. We have the checkbook of the West. We have the checkbook of China. We can play them off each other. And I think that's the smart way to go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Kind of shifting gears a little bit then. I always ask for like a planetary update, which you always do give for Tricontinental and articles. And I recommend everyone checking out Tricontinental. But kind of what, in the spirit of internationalism, what what should we what movement should we be looking at around the world right now what's the breakdown what's happening <laughs> well now you've given me the opportunity to talk about something i'm personally involved in since 2015 i've been involved in a platform a network called the international assembly of the peoples and this was created at a meeting in in outside sao paulo in brazil organized by the landless workers movement the mst and others now we are a platform of about 200 plus political and social organizations from around the world, including Frente Patria Grande from Argentina, Socialist Party of Zambia, the NUMSA trade union, one of the biggest trade unions in Africa. This is based wow. in South Africa, Democratic Way in Morocco, Workers' Party of Tunisia, Communist Party of Nepal, United Socialists. Workers' Party of Bangladesh and so on. I mean, there's 200 plus organizations inside the International People's Assembly. I mean, we're trying to build a, a mass-based internationalist formation. You know, it's not mm -hmm. an NGO formation. It's not an in-name only group and so on. These are mass organizations with millions of members. And we have been trying to build trust across continents, build trust between comrades, uh, find a way to work without stepping on anybody's own programmatic toes, you know, because every, every political agency has its own program, it has its own way of operating and so on. How do you do internationalism by maintaining that, you see? Mm -hmm. And that's been the challenge. And now the assembly is finally out in public. You know, we have done many actions together already. We're building different kinds of networks and so on. So I would say keep an eye out on the International People's Assembly. Get involved in some way, you know, at least go and see the materials, read the political program, find if you are interested in getting involved, see if there's a way for you to get involved. Speaking on what you're working on as well, then you have 
is it speeches of Fidel out as well and you with Manolo and then you also have is it selected speeches or works from Ho Chi Minh as well and what else do you have going on <laughs> right uh, so that's a lot of things to talk about well when the question of uh, Cuba was raised in this last period these two attempted attempts to overthrow the Cuban revolution in July and November of 2021 yeah. this really distressed me a lot because I felt that people don't understand that Cuba is going through a long-term crisis you know this mm -hmm. pandemic has not been easy despite the pandemic despite the blockade Cuba was able to create five different vaccines it's been able to vaccinate almost the entire population it's been struggling you know right through from the collapse of the soviet union on there's been a struggle I must say mm -hmm. that there was a real drop in external revenues in cuba but they never cut healthcare spending they never cut education spending they maintained those a real commitment to the well-being of the population that, that's something to to salute so manolo de los santos and i decided to put together a couple of you know about seven speeches by fidel these are speeches that fidel gave at a time of great crisis whether mm. it's the crisis of of the uh, bay of pigs the crisis of the collapse of the ussr the crisis of neoliberalism the crisis of the failed sugarcane harvest in the 70s and so on and we felt it's interesting to study fidel's speeches on crisis at the moment of crisis because you see how he is able to turn history around the corner and say look we have this problem but look here are the opportunities Mm -hmm. And so that's one book that's already out. It's out from Leftward Books in Delhi. It's out from 1804 Books in New York. I really hope people will get it and study it. Manolo and I also have a special issue coming out from Monthly Review in January 2022, which is Voices from Cuba. Young people from La Tiza Collective. Uh, we've got an, an, an essay from Miguel Diaz Canal, the president of Cuba. I mean, it's a range of people discussing the crisis, the problems in Cuba. It's not all like you know everything's great. No, it's not great. It's tough times, and the young intellectuals around Latiza, for instance, in particular, put forward very uh, forthrightly their views on what they think the crisis is. So, you know, this is part of Manolo and my project of trying to explore the contemporary contradictions in Cuba and. You know, wow. I I hope people will take a look at the monthly review issue when it comes out in January. But yes, I've been working for many years now putting together a selection from Ho Chi Minh. It's a very special book because you know there have been many collections. Foreign Language Press in Hanoi has done collections. Bernard Falls, great collection, put together during the war against Vietnam before Ho Chi Minh died. It's a superb collection. Verso did a collection as well, and so on. this is a different kind of collection because it has a lot of his work from before the revolution of 1945 when vietnam overthrows uh, the rule of the japanese and of of the french and it has a number of his pieces from before then including a unique piece which has never been translated into english which is his lectures that he gave in southern china in the 1920s in 2627 These are lectures he gave on what is a revolution, uh, and they're very interesting to look at. Then, after 1945, I've included a lot of his speeches and letters on how to build socialism. Now, one of wow. the things that this text, or two of the issues, the text is working on. One, I want to finally get rid of the idea that Ho Chi Minh is merely a man of action and not a thinker. In fact, even in the mm -hmm. Verso collection, yeah. I was really unhappy when I read Walden Bellows' introduction, where he directly says, you know, he didn't have any unique ideas essentially. And I think that's absolutely incorrect. Absolutely mm -hmm. incorrect because Ho Chi Minh is a very creative thinker. And the second point of the collection is we are trying to put forward a view of what i'm calling with in tricontinental we did a dossier on this but what we're calling national liberation marxism mm -hmm. a kind of marxism which understands the roots in a poor country peasant country and so on this is juxtaposed against i suppose what perry anderson called western marxism mm -hmm. and i i want people to take ho chi minh seriously and the volume will be out in december I very much hope that you know it will be out from leftward books I very much hope people will take a read of it and really enjoy the the depth of thinking 
that you get from somebody like Ho Chi Minh with all his experiences, you know, incredible range of experiences. Wow. Yeah, definitely going to be looking forward to that for sure. I'm going to hope I can get some signed copies as well. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Good idea. <laughs> maybe you can, you can do a kind of a, a challenge for the Malcolm effect. Yeah. Your greatest okay. fans can get a signed copy or something. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> uh, brainstorming. I did want to ask, I think one of the more kind of popular debates that we see online is uh, you with David Harvey with regards <laughs> to imperialism being a, still being a relevant term in describing what's going on right now in the world. Uh, could, you, could you speak a little bit more on that? Well, I have high respect for David Harvey. I think he's a very important person in, in the world of Marxism. And, you know, even when I disagree with him, I still learn a lot from him. And I think I've very much enjoyed uh, reading most of his work. You know, obviously, you put two Marxists in a room and they'll disagree on how to read capital. And <laughs> right. they'll have serious right. disagreements. Of course, I have some disagreements and all of that. That's not the important part. Mm-hmm. I think what I was, what I am reacting to is is what I felt had been there from David for a while, which is this idea that imperialism is no more a useful category because he measures things by foreign direct investment. And if, for instance, foreign direct investment is leaving a country like China, you know, then it's not a victim of imperialism. In fact, it itself might be characterized as major power and so on. And I thought looking at investment flows, strictly speaking, as a way to get this thing, an understanding of imperialism seems very weak to me. I I don't like uh, that approach. And it also is in a way misleading because imperialism is not just about investment. It's also, as I mentioned earlier, about how there are different mechanisms to, you know, suffocate countries' sovereignty, different mechanisms to ensure income deflation. These are things that he doesn't actually always look at. He'll look at income deflation in, you know, let's say chapter one, but doesn't integrate it into his theory of how the world works. And I think this is misleading for people that if you suggest that there is no such thing today as imperialism, I think it gives people, you know, ties one hand behind your back. So I merely wanted to point that out. You know, again, I feel like he has had a great contribution to Marxism and so on. And and this is not about that. It's principally about how people should understand imperialism. You don't have to read David Harvey to understand imperialism. You can read David Harvey to understand other things. But, you know, I wanted to make that point. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I love reading David Harvey as well. And I definitely learn a lot from reading him. But I kind of wanted to, you know, we're kind of reaching the end here. But I wanted to end things on a, on a positive note. I was wondering if you could talk about the recent win by Indian farmers and kind of the ramifications that that has the left as a whole. Well, you see, the Indian farmers essentially were fighting for their existence. But in many ways, I believe they were also fighting for farmers in other parts of the world. Because, you see, farmers require, you know, all kinds of support. There there is no way to farm in a modern world uh, without various kinds of social support. Farming is too erratic profession in terms of weather and so on. And now with climate change, it's even more difficult. So social support is extraordinarily important for farming, you know, subsidies of different kinds, making sure that farmers are able to make a living through the practice of farming. This is essential, I would say. I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, So I think that this has been on the table for Indian farmers for the last, you know, 35, 40 years, at least since 1991 when India liberalized, started to liberalize the farming sector. 400,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide since then, not because of any other reason than because of the cuts of subsidy, the increased prices of of inputs, the declining prices of of their finished product at the market and so on. So this has been a long struggle and it's a struggle that farmers in other countries will understand. On top of that, last, uh, well, now a year ago, over a year ago, the Indian government pushed through three farm bills. Uh, when these went into law, they essentially uberize agriculture. You know, the farmer is then under the, the control of big, massive corporations that through 
either digital or virtual marketplaces will set the buying price and so on. You know, minimum support prices would have disappeared, subsidies would have disappeared and so on. And farmers simply were not willing to see the uberization of agriculture. They stood up against it. And I think that's the key issue here is that these Indian farmers fought for themselves. They will not permit these bills. They also continue to struggle because they want minimum support prices. They want electricity to be subsidized and so on. But they're also standing for farmers elsewhere. And I hope that that is clear to agriculturalists around the world, that the Indian farm struggle is the front line of a global uh, battle against the uberization of the fields. Let's see where it goes. You know, I, I hope others will join this struggle. Thank you. Thank you. We're coming to an end. But finally, speaking, as you mentioned a second ago, a couple of minutes ago, if you put two marks in the room, they'll argue over capital. I have to get it on recording. What will it take for us to study capital with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you see, it's interesting you say that. We did run an online course on Marxist capital, not me alone, but my colleagues, uh, Chris Caruso, Emma Tonak, Olivia uh, Cardona, then Emiliano Lopez. We all taught capital together. We had a, mm -hmm. a 10-part class, which we did. Wow. And we taught it to militants of different movements. It was quite exciting. And we're putting together our lectures now into a little book on, you know, okay, essentially uh, how to read capital, you know, for the first time. We called the, the class Studying Capital to Overthrow Capitalism. And <laughs> in the first lecture that I gave, I said to them, look, it's a great book. Uh, either you can read this book to learn how to overthrow capitalism or you can just throw it through a bank window. Either way, it will be a good job, you know. And it was pretty fun, this class. Uh, so it, we did it. Now, I believe, honestly, there's no substitute for sitting in the same room when reading a book like this. Mm -hmm. To do it online was difficult because, you know, you've got to get the good feeling of where people are as they read and so on. So... We experimented. Let's see. We may do it again. Let's see. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much once again. I'm going to post, as always, VJ's and Christian socials in the comments. Please like, comment, subscribe, be that on Apple Music or Spotify. And speak soon. This is the Malcolm Effect with Mamadi Tal.